I want to invite you to stand with me if you would. I'm going to read a passage of scripture aloud. Uh, It'll be on the screen. And uh, this is from a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to some Christians uh, who supported him. So here are his words from Philippians, the letter of Philippians in the New Testament, chapter 4. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have, listen, learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. Anybody? Anybody? Okay. And I know what it is to have plenty. Anybody else? Okay. Not as many. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Turn to your neighbor and say, I am going to learn the secret today. Okay? And here he keeps going on. The secret, whether being well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, here's the verse, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. Uh, We're going to talk for a few weeks about uh, having enough, doing enough, uh, being enough, We've been, uh, in the last several weeks, we've been talking about what I would call direct problems. Here's what a direct problem is. That person hurt me, I need to forgive them. I have to do something directly to resolve that problem. Everybody's got direct problems, you've got direct problems, I've got direct problems. Uh, But did you know that there are what I would also call, and these are just as influential in your life, but we don't always see them, what I would call indirect problems. Uh, you, you're not aware of them, you don't, you don't know that they're there, but they create a problem for you. They, they come from the system that you live in, they come from uh, the world that you occupy. Uh, an example might be uh, if you work at the mill. I've, I've never worked at the mill, but I've talked to a lot of people who work at the mill, and they all kind of describe the same kind of situation. It's kind of angry, no one's really very nice. If you work at the mill, thank you for what you do, you, put it, you do a dangerous job. But you walk into a set of circumstances, an environment uh, that you didn't create, and you have, when you're there, an indirect problem. And that's what this series is about, is the indirect problems that we don't see that actually cause as many problems for us as the direct problems. And then after Easter, as we're going to several weeks get this to Easter, and then a week past, we're going to talk about the habits that you're going to need to develop if you're going to move beyond the direct problems and the indirect problems to not so many problems. <laughs> the way of Jesus, how, how radical it is, how helpful it is, the habits you're going to need to develop to do that. But the way you, you, again, the way you deal with direct problems is you deal with them directly, right? I, here's the problem, I got to deal with it. The way you deal with indirect problems is not directly because they're indirect. The way you deal with an indirect problem is that you have to see differently. And I want you to see. I don't want you to be blind. And now here's, here's the problem, though, with indirect problems. Uh, it's that they are not obvious. Uh, we have to look at the things that are right in front of us every day, and we have to see them in a different light, in a different, uh, a different way. Now, I'm, I'm going to jump right into the deep end of the pool, and I'm going to ask you just for this first little bit here to stay with me. And if you stay with me as we jump into the deep end, the payoff for you is large because you're going to see something you have not seen that's been creating problems for you in your life. Um, here, here's, the, here's the big part of the indirect problem uh, that, that we're going to talk about today. 
And, and the indirect problem is that there is an operating system that we all live in that is running the pace of our lives, and we don't see it. Uh, so what I want to do is I want to basically pull back the curtain and show you the wizard behind the curtain pulling the levers. Do, do you know what I'm talking about when I say that? You hopefully have seen, if you're a good American, the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> you know, Dorothy goes from Kansas to Oz and the Lion and the Tin Man and the, the Yellow Brick Road. And then when they finally get to the, where, where the, the palace is or whatever it was called, they go there and, and everyone talks about the wizard like he's this great person. And then they go and they pull the curtain back and the wizard's this little guy pulling levers, right? I want you to see who's pulling the levers because here's the operating system that's creating an indirect problem for you. Now stay with me, okay? We're jumping in the deep end. The indirect problem that is creating an issue in your life is what I would call consumerism. Uh, consumerism runs on you buying things that you do not need. Has anybody ever bought something they don't need? Or is it just me, right? <laughs> you may say, well, Scott, why is that a problem? Why, why are you making this a beef? Why, why are you talking about this? I mean, the consumer confidence index is as high as it's been in a long time. Unemployment, unemployment is as low as it's been in a long time. Why, why are you talking about this? Listen, I'm not talking about your employment, okay? I'm not talking. That's good. Have a job, brings dignity. You can bring glory to God by the way you serve other people at your job. It can be a way you express your faith. I'm not talking about your employment. What I am talking about is your soul. That's what I'm talking about here. Now, Paul says when we're dealing with indirect problems, he has a name for those indirect problems. Uh, in the letter he writes to the Christians in Ephesus, we know it as Ephesians, the letter in the New Testament. Um, he calls it the, the principalities and the powers in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, when we're wrestling with issues, uh, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, another person is never my problem. That's not, I don't wrestle with other people. What I'm wrestling with are the principalities and the powers, he calls them. And they're things that we have to see differently to even recognize that they're there and that they're running our lives. A principality is a way of doing things. And a power is things that we've allowed to have power. And, and they run the pace of things. And they run things. And consumerism is a way of doing things, and it's what we've said has the power. So here, let me, let me bring this, let me bring the, let me land the plane a little bit here, okay? Because you might go, what are you talking about? So what that operating system does is creates in you discontent, dissatisfaction, and the feeling that you are never enough. So here's what I want to tell you. In some ways, the feelings that you have all the time about you're never quite content you don't ever quite have enough stuff. Uh, you never feel like you're enough. Really, in some ways, are not your fault. They are indirect problems. But if you're going to resolve the indirect problems, you have to see them first for what they really are. Because the system we live in creates the problem to run the system. Let me say it to you like this. Discontent is the gasoline in the tank of consumerism, and it needs the gas to keep going, so it makes you discontent so it can continue to run. And let me give you some examples. Have you ever felt, guys, maybe ladies, sorry, uh, bad for being bald? <laughs> like you're less than for not having enough hair? My kids, uh, for my birthday a couple years ago, got me a hair product. <laughs> it's still under the counter. I'm like, I guess I could pull it out. I don't know. But they had picked up the message that you're not supposed to be, uh, you're not supposed, hang on on that picture there, we're not quite there yet. Um, 
you're not supposed to be bald. That's bad. Uh, have you ever felt bad because you're a bit overweight or more overweight? Or felt like you're not quite good enough? Like you like donuts too much and you like chips too much and McDonald's is your friend and you just give them a portion of your paycheck and you, you know. You ever felt bad for that? Uh, have you ever felt bad for not looking like everyone else? Like you, or, or if you're a little bit older, have you felt bad like you're not young anymore? Somehow you're deficient because you're young? I, I need you to understand something, and this is the point I'm trying to drive home, is you are being manipulated into feeling that way. Do, do you understand that? This is the system that we live in that is manipulating you to never feel satisfied and to never feel content. So let me, let me pull back the curtain, that picture that we had of the Glade candles. Um, you've probably done this. Um, I've done this. I've gone to the store and I've looked at a product that I'll normally buy, like say, you know, Colgate toothpaste or Tide. Or, and, and it'll be the old package. And then right next to it, like this candle, will be the new package. Maybe you have done this, right? Like in this illustration, they didn't change the contents of the candle. It doesn't smell any different. It's not in any way a different candle. All they did was change the packaging. But if you're like me, you stand in front of those two items and you look at them and you go, huh, well, there's the old one and there's the new one. I probably should buy the new one. Have you, have you done this? I've done this. <laughs> Maybe it's just me. I've done this because we have been conditioned to believe that new is better. It's part of the system, part of the, the principality, the power. And, and it, 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 it depends on making us discontent with things the way that they are. It's old. It's bad. Now, some of this is as old as humanity. Uh, some of this is, uh, discontent is as old as humanity. If you were to go into the Old Testament, read the story of the two brothers, Jacob and Esau, uh, their father Isaac, and, and th- that both of them were in their own way discontent with their lives, and so they created family turmoil. Um, you could go into the New Testament, you could hear Jesus' story in Luke chapter 15 about the younger son and the older son and the father, and the younger son is discontent with his life, and he says, Father, give me my inheritance, and the, the older son in his own way is discontent with his life and how, his, how he perceives his father has treated him. The, the Ten Commandments, even in the Exodus chapter 20, tells us that we're not to envy, that we're not to have, in other words, have discontent. But here's, here's what the principality, like, what a principality like consumerism does. What it does is it makes what's in your heart, the discontent that's already there, feel like it's right. I don't know if you're seeing the wizard, okay? Let me, let me show you one more aspect of this. What happens is that, that indirect problem, that principality, that power of consumerism, it gets cemented by practices and habits and rituals that we come to see as normal. So let me, national holiday, show of hands. The day after Thanksgiving is called what? Black Friday. Woo, right? It's a national holiday. Uh, I have been to Black Friday one time, and I am never going back. <laughs> oh, my word. Some of you love it, right? <laughs> Some of you have done Black Friday, and you do it, right? Okay, great, great. But we all believe that it's great because what happens is they measure how the economy is doing based on the sales on Black Friday. And we all applaud this. We all say, well, that's great. Black Friday was good, and they sold lots of stuff, and then Cyber Tuesday and all that, all that stuff that happens. Now, get this. 
Another, another ritual practice that we just are okay with. Um, now, basically, any holiday is an excuse to sell items. It's Meyer does this. Walmart does this. Target does this. There's a whole section of the store that they take out the stuff of the current season, and they put in the new stuff, and they sell you a bunch of stuff that you don't need. Right? So you, you may have done like we did because we walked in a parade and bought green beads for St. <laughs> Patrick's Day. Right? Someone bought a boat based on that fact, right? <laughs> Made the money off of that. And we're just all okay with that. That's just normal. That's just how it is. Um, or we have this thing, we call it planned obsolescence. Do you, do you know what planned obsolescence is? Uh, a company will make a product, and uh, they give it a life cycle. They know after a certain amount of time it's going to break, and then you're going to e- need to either go buy a new one or they're going to change it, and so you're going to need to buy a different one to use the product that they originally sold. So I'll give you an example. Using me, uh, I, I'm, a, I'm an iPhone guy, and so I've had several generations of the iPhone. Um, the iPhone for a long time had this connector that you used to plug it in, the iPhone 3, 4, this same connector. And then, and you bought it for, you know, you had to buy it in addition to your phone and for $29 or whatever it was. And then they decided that they would change it. And now it's different. And they're going to change it again because they get you to buy one more thing. Now, we have this line. You know, we say they don't make it like they used to. They literally don't make it like they used to. right? They, they're planning on you having to buy it again because it's a revenue stream for that company. Or if you're a, a Mac user and you use a, a Mac computer, then they, they'll change up how it charges. So... Same thing, I don't know all the intricacies of that, but they put a new charger because then you have to buy a new charger to plug your, I've got a picture of that, uh, to plug your computer in and plug your gadgets to that and you have to buy all new little dangle dongle things to plug all that in. And it's planned obsolescence and we all just say, well, that's just normal and that's good. Like here's the, here's the text from the Apple website about the newest phone and they do this every time there's a new one. I'm gonna read it to you. With iPhone 10, the device is the display. An all-new 5.8-inch Super Retina screen fills the hand and dazzles the eyes. <laughs> it sounds ludicrous when you read it that way, doesn't it? That's how it is, though, right? We get manipulated into, and they, they say that to us every time they come out with a new, a new thing. And we, see, the levers are being pulled, and we're being taught that this is normal. But it's an, it creates an indirect problem where we are discontent and it requires us to be discontent with what we have. Do, do you understand? Are you starting to see how you have an indirect problem and so do I? And we're even, we even start to think of it like that's good. That's good. That's how American economy works. That's how we're the best economy in the world. And yeah, they, yeah, us. Now, you may be a, a history nerd like I am. And uh, so I, I dug back and I thought, okay, well, where does this all kind of come from, this way we think about things as Americans. And there was a, a guy by the name of Adam Smith, and he wrote a very influential book in the 1700s. It was published in 1776 called The Wealth of Nations. Later in Adam Smith's life, after he wrote, wrote The Wealth of Nations, he regretted, I don't know if he repented, I, but he regretted having written it because he said what I did was I put greed in as a good thing, and I regret that I did that. And basically what he says, I've got the quote here for it, but there's a phrase in there that you've probably heard before that we've all agreed is a good thing. 
And this is what he says. He's, when he uses he, he's talking about you and me. He intends only his security. He's talking about how we purchase things. And by directing that industry in such a manner as its produce may be of the greatest value, he intends only for his own gain, and he is in this, as in many other cases, led by an invisible hand. How many of you have ever heard that phrase in reference to our economy, the invisible hand? You may have heard that phrase and gone, oh, they're talking about God's hand. No, no, no. Do you know what he's talking about if you read the context of this? I read the context of this. He's talking about being discontent and how that will drive people. Now, I got a question related to all of the way we are, live in our, our life and, and how we're, we're taught to buy more things and have more experiences and that'll make us happy. Are we happy yet? There you have it. Or, and we're all taught this, we think happiness is one more purchase, one more experience, one more trip away. I, I don't know. Do you, are you beginning to see the problem? Do you, do you see the wizard? Now, once you see it, you can't not see it, and you will become like a fish in the ocean that finally realizes that it's wet. Oh, this is all water around me. Now, right into the middle of this, you hear this guy named Paul, uh, who wrote much of what we have as the New Testament, say this phrase to us that he's learned the secret of contentment. What? Now, we hear that, and we're kind of skeptical, because who, t- who sells us secrets? I mean, people who, s- who tell us they found the secret, they're obviously selling something to us for 1995. <laughs> and, and they're duping us. At least that's how it works for us. Um, my, my, uh, my boys love uh, cars. I'm not a car guy. I never have been a car guy. Uh, but they, they love cars. They'll tell me cars driving down the road and all these exotic cars and all this kind of stuff. And, and so we went to the Chicago Auto Show a few weeks ago. And uh, in the middle of one of the sides of the show is a place where you can go buy all the junk. And so like good Americans, we went shopping. And so we walked walk through there. And there, were, there was a guy there um, with a little sham wow thing. You know, it's like this little chamois. And he has this little can. And maybe you've seen this at a show like that. He has this little can speech. He's wearing a little headset. He's got a little microphone. And he ha- pours a cola on a pad of carpet and then he mops it all sucks it all up and wrings it all out and my kids have never seen this before and I'm standing back behind them just and they're a few feet away and they're all I mean transfixed they're all just like (laughs) my oldest son turns back and looks at me and he goes dad how can we not buy this (laughs) right we all believe that we're being sold something when someone tells us they have the secret to something right so when anybody makes a claim like that, I want to know what kind of person is making that claim. What's their life like? What have the results been of their life? Uh, Paul is, by probably any measure, one of the most influential and successful people in human history. You and I are sitting here in large part because Paul took the message of Jesus uh, around his known world and spread the message of Jesus and left us what we have as the majority of the New Testament. Um, we're, we're here because this man was an incredibly successful man. But, but again, is, is he really that great of a guy? I, I, when we had our kids, um, we had some people <laughs> who had never had kids who would give us parenting advice, and we'd go, what? what? Huh? You have no children. Why are you telling us to do things? Is Paul like that? Or is Paul like the grandfather or the great-grandfather who sees you struggling with your kids and says, it's all going to be okay? And then when you sit down and have a conversation with them, they tell you the things they wish they'd done differently or the things they'd done more of, and you go, oh, okay, I'm doing okay. Or is Paul like that guy? Well, 
I want to suggest to you that Paul is like that guy. Now, he wrote this letter to the Christians in the ancient city of uh, Philippi. Philippi was a colony of military veterans, and the Roman Empire was the superpower of the day. And the way they extended their control is they would conquer a people group, and then they would take some of their veterans, and they would give, they would land grant them land in this new city, and then they would go there, and they would have, obviously, their loyalty to the emperor, and they would also be military men and leaders, and so they would basically control the city, and this is how they expanded their empire. And so... Um, Paul, uh, on one of his journeys, he went through Philippi and um, he planted a, a, a group of Jesus-following people, a church. And I've got some pictures here of the ancient Philippi. You could go there today. It's, there's a, still a city there. This is the theater there that sat thousands of people. They still use it for events today. Um, a picture of the forum here where this was like the center market of the town where you would go and uh, go to the ruins there. It was on what was known as the Ignatian Way. The Ignatian Way was a road that traveled throughout the Roman Empire that they paved. You can still walk on it today. Um, and I've got a map here that shows you how far it went across Turkey and Greece all the way to, uh, what is that, the Aegean Sea or the Mediterranean Sea. And, and then you could take a boat over to, to Italy and to Rome. And, and Paul uh, made tents. He was a tent maker. And most scholars think that what Paul did is he made his tents and he would sell them primarily to the military because when the military would go on their campaigns, they would need tents. And so Paul had built up rapport with military guys, and so he knew what military guys were like. And so when he went to Philippi, these were, these were men that he knew, that he understood. And so he helped them begin to understand what it meant to follow Jesus, and he planted a, a little community. And now what Paul did is he would travel. He would make these journeys, and over a 10-year period, he made three different journeys. we got a map here. It's got all kinds of colors on it, and you may or may not be able to see it, but it just shows the extent of his travels. And he would go around built, making his tents, spreading the message of Jesus. Everywhere he went, he would cause some sort of unrest because the message of Jesus always challenges the status quo in any culture. And uh, he would cause some unrest. He was chased out of some places. He was beaten in some places. Uh, he was, went hungry in some places, but he traveled around. And then you can see there, there's a purple line that represents his last journey. In one of the places he was, uh, what, he was planning a church, he got in trouble with the authorities because of the message he was teaching about Jesus. And he came before the governor, and the governor uh, said, you know, we don't know what to do with you, and he made an appeal to Caesar. And if you were a Roman citizen, and Paul was a Roman citizen, you could make an appeal to the emperor to hear your case. And so that last journey right there, Paul is now going on his way to Rome, and he lives in Rome in jail and dies there for his faith. Now you hear jail, and you go, oh, jail, all right, he's behind bars, and three square meals a day, and, you know, an hour uh, out in the yard, Every day, okay, well, that's not, not too bad. No, no, that's not what prison was like at all. We've got a picture here of what an ancient Roman prison was like. Um, they built these on top of each other, and so you would be lowered down through that hole, and that was where you were. You, you can maybe make out just kind of below the, sh the shadow of the light shining down from that hole another hole, so there'd be someone below you. There are no facilities there. They might feed you, but more often than not, you had to have food uh, from someone outside the prison or you would starve to death. And so this is where Paul spent a couple of years. And the Philippian Christians, the place where he planted a church, heard that he was in jail and they sent Epaphroditus, you could read about him in, in Philippians, uh, as a representative with a gift for Paul to pay for his meals. And so Paul writes this letter back to them saying thank you. And so in the middle, so you need to understand, the guy who says, I've learned the secret of contentment. Do you know where he's writing this letter from? 
prison. (laughs) He's not writing it from a yacht in the Caribbean, sipping a beverage. He's in prison. So he says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty, and I've learned the secret of being content, no matter what I have. And if you read the life of Paul, he was shipwrecked, he was stoned, he was run out of town, and he learns through that process, he learns what we know of as the secret of being content. And he says in verse 13, very famous verse, he says, I can do all of this, be content in other words, through Christ who gives me strength. Now we take that verse kind of out of context and we tattoo it on our arm and we say, I can run a marathon in Jesus' name. You can, okay? I Go run the marathon for Chicago, for, the, for Team World Vision in Jesus' name. Absolutely. That's not exactly what Paul had in mind. He's saying that I can learn when I have nothing to be okay because if I have Jesus, I have enough. And I don't have to have someone tell me that if I'm bald, I'm not enough, or if I'm overweight, I'm not enough, or if I'm getting older, I'm, I'm, not, I'm no good, or I'm, I'm a throwaway, or I'm not, I don't have to be satisfied or discontent. Because I got Jesus, and I found out that Jesus was enough. I don't have to listen to those messages that create this discontent in me. I, I am enough because I have Jesus. And he learned that secret. He, he learned the secret. So here's what we're going to do for the next few weeks, is we're going to work on learning that secret, too. It's not... It's not a secret, you, you hear the secret, and then you get it, and then everything's changed. You learn it by practice, by different habits, different rituals. So I'm, I'm going to give you three. I'm going to give you th- three ways you can take this today and begin to apply this, learn this secret of contentment in your life, because it's not going to be instantaneous. It wasn't for Paul. It won't be for you. Um, but before we, I tell you these three things, let me tell you three other things that he says to, in other places to other Christians that, that apply here, okay? He says this to the Corinthians in his letter in 2 Corinthians. He says, Where, wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there the heart is free. He's saying another version of Philippians 4.13. When I'm with Jesus, my heart's free. Free from discontent. Free from dissatisfaction. Free from someone telling me that I'm not enough. I'm free if I have the spirit of the Lord. And then he says in Romans 12, uh, 1 and 2, he says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. Now, my mom used to make jello molds. <laughs> but it was this like metal thing and it had a, some indentations and then she would put the jello in and then she would put it in the fridge and then she would take it and turn it upside down and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and it had a shape, a predetermined shape. The, the, the way it was going to look was already determined. And the already determined shape of the world that we live in is you being discontent, unhappy, and dissatisfied. And then the system uses that to manipulate you, to get you to buy more things, and leaving you more discontent, unhappy, and dissatisfied. Do you see how that works? I'm not, listen, I'm not saying don't ever buy things. I'm saying don't be owned by the need to buy things. Because every, here's what everybody else around you is saying. The wizard is in power. Yes, we, we think the wizard's awesome. Paul says, resist. Resist. So he says, I have learned the secret of being content. So we're going to learn together the secret of being content. Three ways, okay? Here's the first thing. This is going to be a big one. Uh, I want to ask you to purge five things a day for the duration of this series, which would be a- April the 8th. Um, did you know that... If every American were to go and stand underneath the roof of a self-storage, of all the self-storage units in America, that every American could comfortably fit under the roofs of all the self-storage units in America? 
Did you know that? I, I didn't know that till this week. Did you know that uh, of the people who use a self-storage unit, uh, 67%, I think it is, already have a garage, a basement, and an attic. An attic. <laughs> so they have too much stuff. It's kind of all bleh, falling out. So they have to find a place to put it. So what I'm asking you to do is to give away, throw away, donate five things a day. Now, I'm not talking about just you uh, and your household doing five things. Every person in your house. Purge five things a day until April 8th. Now, you could do this. We're doing this with a group that meets at our house on Sunday nights. We're going to all come together, collect all of our stuff, and we're going to have a garage sale, and then we're going to donate that money to our student ministry so that kids can take mission trips and, and like that in the summer. And so you could do that too. If you needed the money for that, that's great too. There's no pressure to do it that way, but that could be a good thing. Um, but we're, we're, as Americans, because we're taught to be discontent, we're kind of addicted to our stuff. Um, the self-storage industry is a $38 billion industry. That's just a couple years ago what movies made. Um, we last year spent $370 million on pet costumes. <laughs> Ooh, is that, is that too close to home? I'm sorry, is that making you uncomfortable? I'm sorry. I have a dog sweater. I'm, I don't know how I ended up with one, but I have one. We spent $3 billion on ringtones. I, confession, 99 cents of that is mine for a sweet Monday night football ringtone, if you call me. I did an inventory of uh, the shirts, just the shirts, T-shirts, button-up shirts, those kinds of things. I'm embarrassed to say how many shirts I have. I'm embarrassed. Uh, I'm not not trying to tell you this to make you feel guilty. I'm just, the secret of contentment means you have to learn when you have enough. And you have to define an enough threshold. Like, I have enough. I have enough tools. I have enough toys, I have enough fishing poles, I have enough bats, I have enough hats, I have enough cats. I, I'm just starting to rhyme now. I, get <laughs> I, have, I have my car is enough, my TV is enough. You know, I, I have enough. I don't have the newest one, but I have enough. You have to, do you understand that no matter how much you make, there's always someone that makes more than you? And even if you have a vacation home some other place, you're going to run in circles where someone else has two vacations home, home some other place? Oh, well, maybe I need a third home in the mountains. Do you understand if you don't define enough that someone else will define enough for you and you'll never be dissatisfied and you will always be discontent? Do, do you get that? So at some point in here, you've just got to go, I have enough. You have to say to yourself and to your family and to your budget, I have enough. That's enough. We're good right here. We don't have to go beyond this. I have enough. I've been privileged to travel multiple places around the world, and I've been to multiple developing countries. And um, every time I go to a developing country, I I get my, my understanding of the world rocked because I go and I find people, particularly people who follow Jesus in those places, they have nothing. I mean, when I say nothing, they have nothing. And they have so much more joy and peace than almost any American Christian that I've experienced that I think, what is wrong with us? Um, I went to Kenya with World Vision a few years ago, and um, here's a picture. of they, We drove way out into the bush and went to a, a little village and to someone's home, and there's the ladies that are preparing a meal for us. And this was a family um, that they raised goats. Now, they don't have um, banks. If they have livestock, goats, 
uh, cows, that's their wealth. That's, the, that's their family's future. And this family had had someone come and steal their goats. So it'd be like someone coming and taking all the money out of your bank account and you can't replace it. And they had us, thus us overfed, wealthy Americans from their perspective, sat down. And you know what they fed us? Goat. It's like, oh. Um, I, I took a picture of their closet. This is a picture of their closet, if you want to call it that. This is their closet. right? It's up so the snakes can't get in it. I'm not showing you this so you feel bad. That is not my point. Okay? I'm not trying to make you feel bad for having things. I'm simply saying there are places in the world, there are people in the world who follow the same Jesus that you do that they don't have to have stuff to feel like they have enough. And Jesus for them is actually enough. And, and somewhere, if you're going to learn the secret of contentment, you're going to have to set the enough threshold. Well, purging five things a day is going to force you to say, hmm, I think I might have enough. Okay? That's the first thing. Second thing is this, is that you would pray about every dollar that you spend. Now, here's what I don't mean. I don't mean uh, when you've got your groceries and you're in line at, uh, at the new Strack and Ventil or at Meyer or Walmart or wherever, that you have your grocery filled up and that you kneel down in front of your groceries and say, Lord, was I supposed to buy the wheat bread or the white bread? I'm not, I'm not asking that, okay? I'm not saying that. Someone gave me this question as I was talking about this message, uh, said this. Here's a great way to, to pray this, okay? Lord, is this where it goes? Praying that recognizes that what you have, what I have, is a gift from God. And I'm just the manager of it, not the owner of it. So is, it, is this where it goes? Or does it need to go over here? Now, in all honesty, you may be in line to get a latte at Starbucks. And you've had a really rough week. And man, it just uh, five minutes of hot comfort <laughs> would be so great. And that might be where it needs to go right then. I'm not trying to, this is not about guilt, okay? It's just recognizing, is this where it goes? We don't do that. But if you want contentment, if you don't want to be, have your life manipulated by the people pulling the levers, you're going to have to do something this radical. And then the third thing, uh, just very simply, and this, you may not need this, but just you need to get better with money. And so uh, April the 8th and the 15th, Sunday morning, you can come, I think it's going to be at 9 o'clock, um, you can come and get a financial tune-up. You'll learn about uh, how to get out of debt. You'll learn about how to manage your cash flow so that you can do a better job with your finances. It's a, it's a taster of the Financial Peace University, which will have a nine-week thing after that you can get into. Um, but you may need that, and w- you'll see the details for that. You can sign up for that, and that might be something that will help you to realize, oh, I have enough, and I'm, I'm, I got enough, and I'm going to be okay. And um, that might be something that, that you need to do. But you, this all keys on you understanding that Jesus is enough and not your stuff. <laughs> it's all keyed on that. Jesus is enough. And when you find out that you have Jesus and you understand what, who he says that you are and who he, who he is in your life and how he's guiding you and where he's taking you and the purpose he has for your life, all of a sudden other things start to get, other voices get silent and you start to see the indirect problems for what they are and, oh, I don't want to be controlled by that. I want you to control my life, Jesus. And you will. You will learn what Paul learned, the secret of contentment. 
uh, I'm going to pray for you, and then we're going to be done. Let's pray. So God, here we are, uh, me included. We're, we're, just, we're a bunch of uh, Americans, and we've been taught a certain way of being. We've been taught the way of discontentment. We've been nurtured in the way of dissatisfaction. We've been trained in the school of feeling like we're never enough. And we want to see it for what it is. We want to see it for the, the wizard behind the curtain. We want to see it for the lie that it is. We want to see the dimensions of it and see that we've swum in it. You're not overwhelmed by our culture like you've never been overwhelmed by any culture. And so we want to see it, but we want to see, we want to see you even more clearly. We want to see how you're rich in mercy. You're rich in love. You're rich in kindness and compassion, and you have that, enough of that to give to us to overcome the messages we receive that tell us we're not enough. So Jesus, thank you that you're enough. You're enough for every person in this room. You're enough for the person who's in debt up to their eyeballs and doesn't know how they're going to pay their bills this week. You're enough for the person who has more money than they know what to do with. You're enough for everybody and everybody in between. And so we want to we learn this secret. We, we do. And so uh, for those of us who are committing to do this, to, to pray, say, Lord, is this where it goes? We really want you to guide our money and where it goes and how it makes a difference. We really want to not be controlled by our stuff. So as we purge and have garage sales and throw things away, with each thing, remind us, you're enough, you're enough, you're enough. So thank you for the way you're going to work in each of our lives over these next several weeks as you teach us the secret of contentment. We pray this in your name. Everybody who wanted contentment said, amen, amen. Well, right as we exit here in just a second, uh, um, as you go out, we've got uh, a way for you to, um, to give to help our student ministry. Our student ministry has had carpet for, so give me just a second here, okay? We're going to do the blessing. Um, as, we, as we exit, this is the carpet that's been in our student ministry for 21 years. If you go in person, you'll see it looks like a Petri dish. It's awful. I have three kids. I can barely keep my, the carpet in their room clean. We've had 1,000 plus kids in the last 21 years go on this floor. And uh, for about five or six dollars a kid, if you average that out, we've spent that. It's time to replace it. We don't have it. We run a super tight budget. If you would like to help us replace it, we actually had someone in the first service say that they would, um, they would give up to $5,000 and match dollars to that. Because it's uh, in the, if we get the stuff that's easy to replace, the better stuff, we put down the cheap stuff 21 years ago, it's close to $13,000 to replace it. So if you would be willing to help with that, we've got a cheaper option as well. Um, but you can give it the door on our app, at the kiosk, all that. We would greatly appreciate that. So would you stand? I'm going to give you a blessing as you go. And then we will be done. Receive this blessing. May you know the God who says that you are enough, that he's enough for you. His love is enough for you. His compassion is good enough for you. His kindness is, and riches in mercy are enough for you. You receive that love, that message that you're enough in Jesus. You're sent now to love God, to love people who serve the world in his name. If you need someone to pray for you, our prayer team's down front. See ya. Hug someone, tell them you love them.